Welcome, everyone. This is Reverend Dr. Gene Archer, pastor of the Pilgrim Church of the Firstborn Toronto. This is Thursday night, our Bible study. And we are dealing with um, the book of Revelation, just a sweep of the book. And right now we are chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. And I will read it, and then we'll be able to go into the lesson. It says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months and I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from the mouths and their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending out each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a, a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to God, the God of heaven. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, despite the difficulty of this text with the many different interpretations that you'll give us clarity of mind and heart. And so I pray that your spirit will lead us into all truth tonight, that we will unpack what needs to be understood, working close to your text. And, oh God, that we will know how then should we think how then should we expect and how then should we act? Now 
and going forward. And so inform our emotions, inform our expectations, inform our actions with the truth of your word. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we find that two main things as we are at this point in history. First of all, what should we expect in terms of our relationship to the broader culture and the world of unbelievers as a whole? What should we expect from them? Then, what should we do as we look to the end of human history and establish and, and understand the establishment of God's eternal kingdom. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So these two main questions, our expectations, and how should we act based upon those expectations? And so these are the questions that will be asked of this text, Revelation 11 verses one to 13. It is important for us to understand that this particular section has so many different statements. It would take us weeks to go through all of this. We get certain kind of language that's coming out. Um, for example, we read in the text that of strange images of a temple and two unnamed witnesses and odd references of 42 months or 1,260 days and fire and blood and, uh, and a very grotesque beast and death and resurrection and the ultimate triumph of God's kingdom. All of that we see in these 13 verses. And so for us, it would take us weeks and possibly months to unpack this particular section alone. In fact, there are, I think, over 10 different interpretations of this section, especially um, concerning the two witnesses. Who are these two witnesses? I will only address about three of them and select one that I believe is more accurate and true to the text based upon the whole context, the, the immediate context and the remote context of the book of Revelation. And so this section is descriptive of highly figurative and extremely graphic language of what the church of Jesus Christ can expect during the time between the first and the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And also what the church should do as the church waits for the Lord's appearance. The church can expect persecution, serious um, suffering, and um, in the midst of its prophetic ministry, and witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, yet it will be protected and preserved. Although there the physical martyrdom, of course, and death and so on. 
Now, before I go any further, I'd just like to spend a few minutes to clarify just it's, I'm doing actually, I teach at a Bible Institute here in Toronto, and I'm presently teaching a class um, online, as it were, I teach a class, Zoom, um, other pastors and Christian workers, um, not only in North America, but other parts of the world as they, they tune in. And I'm teaching hermeneutics and we reach a section concerning prophecy. And I started last week and the next session I will conclude. And, and now we are in a section right here. This is just kind of a kind of serendipitous um, setting that this is happening. Prophecy, especially today's understanding of prophecy, everybody is a prophet, so to speak. And of course, I believe that we are in a time where I'm not a cessationist, as some preachers are, and quite a lot are not. A cessationist is one who believes that certain gifts of the spirit ceased. And that's another study in itself. I do not believe so. And so having said that, I believe that the gift of prophecy is still active today, just as it was in Acts with Agabus and so on. Um, but I believe also that um, prophecy has been misunderstood. In fact, in the Old Testament, only about 2% of the prophecies in the Old Testament have a predictive element. In fact, I dare say that about 1% of all the Old Testament prophecies are messianic. So the messianic prophecy or the predictive aspect of the Messiah coming was only 1% of the, of the volume of prophecy in the Old Testament. Other than 98 or 99% were actually um, the proclaimers because the prophets back then were the, um, the, the, um, the, the watchmen within Israel. They were, they were the ones who were steeped in the Pentateuch um, stipulations and, and the covenant um, reinforcement. They were covenant reinforcers. Um, and so this they had to reinforce all that was stated in the Pentateuch. And the Pentateuch, as you know, is the first five books of the Bible. But in particular, when the stipulations were laid down in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we saw that they reinforced that. And when Israel drifted out of that, they came and they spoke. We see it in Isaiah with chapter 5 with the woes and so on. And all through, the prophets were, um, they did this in a poetic way many times. Other times they did it in a very graphic way. Sometimes their lives, like Hosea, their lives were actually the message itself. And Isaiah and Ezekiel, they did some other, you know, so-called outlandish ways, which I won't get into right now, just to give the message at certain points in a moral crisis within the nation of Israel. And so the prophets were like that. That's what they did. In fact, in, 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 in First and Second Kings, we see that Elijah 
And Elisha belonged to what is called the school of the prophets. Yes, the prophets had a school. And um, when Elisha asked for a double portion, according to um, one of my scholars that I look to, um, Dr. Walter, Professor Walter Kaiser Jr., um, the Hebrew word for prof, for um, for double portion there means twice in layman's terms, layman's terms, twice the the mouth the, the mouth power, twice the mouth power, twice the, the power of the mouth or the tongue. Because Baal, the Baal, Baal worship was prominent. And as Elisha left the scene, Elijah left the scene, Elisha had to deal with a kind of different cultural religious setting of paganism, where there was a, an explosion of false prophets, um, especially when the hundreds of them died um, on Mount Carmel in, in Elijah's ministry. And so the double portion was a portion that he means double the amount of prophets or, or, or proclaimers of the counsel of God within Israel to overwhelm and to match the, um, the other pagan false prophets that were prominent. As you see in Revelation, a lot of false prophets were there. And, and even the false prophets, they were not just predicting falsely. To my point again, but the content of their message was doctrinal because the prophets were the, the biblical prophets of God, I must clarify, were, were um, covenant um, reinforcers. And so the false prophets were doctrine of devil reinforcers. So that is a tension that we find in the book of, find in the book of Revelation. So there's more I could say about prophets there. And so in the New Testament, we see even Paul in one of his letters in, 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 in Corinthians say that he wished would all, all, would all be prophets. He was kind of coming off what Moses said, not in the sense of a, of a predictive element, but proclaiming witnesses. So therefore, within the proclamation, there is a predictive element, yes, because we talk about the second coming of the Lord and so on. Um, that it is how it's need, it needs to be looked at. And so we see the first challenge in understanding this section of Revelation 11, verses um, 1 to 13, verses 1 and 2. There we see the measuring of the temple of God. Now, this is where it gets really toughy, just to start. Many people believe that, you know, the temple, the altar, the altar court in verses one and two all refer to a literal physical temple in a literal geographic location in the east called Jerusalem that will be built before the second coming. That is in the doctrine or the, the system of what is called dispensationalism which I do not advocate to that, that system of, of interpretation of the scriptures. That came in about um, in the 19th century. And so it's a new system that was superimposed upon the text. And it has many, many problems. 
okay, which I won't get into now. But they take this text literally that, and, and you have been here taught in, in these circles, majority of preachers in North America hold to this view that, um, that Jerusalem will be, be built, will be rebuilt just before the second coming of Jesus Christ. And you have been taught that the worshipers are faithful believing Jews of the so-called tribulation period who will have reinstituted the sacrificial and the ritual system of the mosaic um, economy during that time. Their activity, however, will be terminated by the beast who will bring desolation to the temple service and subject the holy city of Jerusalem to severe affliction for the last three and a half years. And they take that literally, or 42 months um, in a literal interpretation of the seven year tribulation period, literal seven years. Thus the outer courts refer to Gentiles who will persecute the remnant during the 42 month period. The two witnesses are either Elijah or Moses themselves are individuals who are characterized in their persons and ministries by the elements and activities of these two figures as recorded in the Old Testament, of those two figures, Moses and Elijah as in the Old Testament. Their witness will span three and a half years, after which they will be martyred by the beast only to be resurrected three and a half days later. And you know, I, 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 I hear and understand because initially when I did my first degree at the Jamaica Theological Seminary, this is what I was taught. Now, I, I've changed my views with that since that, just about revelation, nothing else, <laughs> um, right? And, um, I believe that this section here of 1 to 13 describes symbolically the mission and the, um, the experiences, the detrimental experiences of the church during the entire present intercovenant in, in, inter or interadvent years between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus, culminating in the final period of opposition and persecution by the beast. So everything is building to a climax. And on this view, the temple or sanctuary together with the altar and the worshipers are a reference to the church as God's people. Let me clarify now. Bear with me, I'm trying to go as slowly as I can. All throughout the New Testament, the temple of God is first the person of Jesus Christ, in whom God dwells and manifested his presence. Then secondly, Christ's body, the church of Jesus Christ. There's no other, as I said in previous studies, when Jesus came, 
the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Historically, God is doing getting away with the literal temple because Jesus Christ and the church is a temple of God now. Then Jerusalem was destroyed. Why? Because the Bible now speaks about not the old Jerusalem, but the new Jerusalem. So you can't go back to the old Jerusalem. Jesus Christ ended all of the sacrificial system. You can't be going back to the sacrificial system again and doing, then, then it defeats the whole purpose of the efficacy of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So all of that view about it's a literal going back to start, but all ritual as the Old Testament the Jews are going to do, it's a contradiction because of the, their view of the, the dichotomy between Jews and Gentiles that is taught by dispensationalism. Now, I believe in dispensations, but not this system of dispensationalism. Okay? And so, therefore, we, you, myself, all of us who believe in Jesus Christ, the church, are the only temple in which God will ever again dwell. Let me hammer that right here. Among many texts to indicate this is 1 Corinthians 3, 3 verses 16 and 17. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. 1 Peter 2 and verse 5. Okay? Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22, and so on. So we see that right there. If you read a section of Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So this is a living temple. Uh, in him, you also are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That is it. But you might say, okay, let's look at the text again in Revelation 11, verses 1 to 2. The temple stated there, the altar, the worshippers, the outer court, and the holy city, in these first two verses of chapter 11, all refer to figurative or symbolically to the church. That is what I'm stating. The believing community of God's people now on earth. Yes, let us remember that in Revelation 3, verse 12, the church, the believing community of God's people now on earth are promised that they will be a pillar in the temple of God. There you see a remote context accentuating that this is speaking about the church. They will be written on, uh, they will have written on them the name of God and the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem. So how can you superimpose the old Jerusalem back into this context? No, 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 that is wrong. So this is speaking about the spiritual, um, the church, which you see this in, um, in, in other parts of the Bible again. And so the measure of the temple, Hebrews chapter 12, for example, from verse 
23 onward, you see it there. The measure of the temple has nothing to do with ascertaining the size and width and height. To measure speaks of spiritual preservation from God's wrath. That is what all of scripture really emphasizes, but not from physical persecution or martyrdom. Thus, this measuring is equivalent to the sealing in chapter 7 and the worshipers in, in, in chapter 11 of Revelation and verse 1 are the same as the 144,000 in chapter 7, verse 4. You see how the word measure is used again in 2 Samuel 8, verse 2b, Isaiah 28, verses 16 and 17, um, Ezekiel 42, verse 20, Zechariah 1, verse 16, and so on. And these are Old Testament examples of measuring as protection. So that is a remote context in which we understand how the word is used. And so the point of the imagery is to remind us that we, the people of God, are sustained and protected and kept secure in our faith while we suffer great at the hands of the beast, which we're going to see in more detail here. To be measured means to be known and loved and preserved secure by God against all opposition. This is a, from a spiritual perspective, which we have to emphasize because we're more than conquerors. But physically, as this text is going to show and Revelation 13 shows also, I think verse seven of Revelation 13, that we will suffer physical defeat and so on. So what does it mean that the inner sanctuary is protected? but the outer one is trampled or persecuted. Bear with me. Some try to fit into this, the inner sanctuary um, is the true church of Jesus Christ, while the outer court refers to the nominal, but not true believers of Jesus. One is protected by God, the other is not. And that is possible, yes. However, um, I, I think to differ from that because John's way of describing the church, church's experience viewed from two different perspectives. That's what I believe is happening. It's the same church viewed from two different perspectives, right? The church is spiritually protected from God's wrath, the inner sanctuary, because we are the, the nows of God, the most holy place, the inner sanctuary, can't touch that. But the physical oppressed by pagan forces out of court, that is our physical site where we'll be martyred and so on because we are the temple. Let's not miss this. According to this, the holy city must yet be another symbolic designation to the church. Revelation chapter, chapter um, 12 talks about we have come to the city, the, the New Jerusalem, the church of living God and so on, and the church, the church of the firstborn and so on. Um, and so Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, Hebrews 12, 22, Hebrews 13, verse 14, you see all of that there to reinforce that what I'm saying is so. In fact, 
the holy city, the church in Revelation, city police, P-O-L-I-S, police. Um, you, 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 that's where you get a word, policing from. And it, interestingly, just to stick something here, that's where you get a word from, be propolis. Be propolis is a kind of um, thing that you can get in health food stores using toothpaste sometimes. Um, why they call it propolis is because it has it is a resin that the bees get from the plants and they darb it along the entrance of the hive, which is the entrance of their city, as it were. And so it's called pro pro, which means before, and polis means the city, before the city. So it's the bees having protection. That's why they call it propolis, just to kind of stick some etymology there. That is all that that word came about, and so therefore, propolis means city, um, and it is used four times of the future heavenly city, the New Jerusalem. Four times, Revelation three verse twelve, twenty-two verse two, and ten, and twenty-two twenty-one verses two and ten, and twenty-two verse nineteen, and so. Um, we also see it in Galatians 4, verse 26. Now, holding on to your hats there now, gets really rough now. 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years, a time, times, and half a time, verses two and three. What is the meaning? of 42 months and 1,260 days and three and a half years. Are these references to some chronological period of time that we might mark on our calendar? Or are they symbolic references to a period of time regardless of duration? In which certain characteristic features and events are prominent? Again, the dispensationalists who take revelation in a strictly futuristic literal sense, they state that the reference to three and a half years of the so-called seven year great tribulation that is yet to come, that's what they refer as. But I would disagree with that. And let me give my point based upon my, the commenters that I have extrapolated all of this from. The period of 42 months equal 1,260 days equal three and a half years equal time times half a time is a reference to the, to the whole of this present church age spanning from the exalta exaltation and ascension of Christ to his second coming during which time the beast opposes the persecute and persecutes the church of God. In other words, brethren, the question before us is this, is this period of time, 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years, time, times, half a time, chronological, hence literal, or theological, hence symbolic? Does it refer to the quantity of time or the quality of a period of time? 
I believe, along with other scholars, um, that and I'm piggybacking on their interpretation and their, their, their scholastic work. I believe it refers to the latter. It is a qualitative period of time. The first thing we observe is that the expression in Daniel chapter um, 7, verse 25, it says here, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. You see that? That's a, that's a promise. And shall, and shall think to change the times and the laws and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. There is a predictive element in Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. Um, we see Revelation 2, verse 2, 42 months, the period during, the nation, during which the nations will trample the holy city. Verse 3, 1,260 days, or 42 months, of 30 days each the period during which the two witnesses will prophesy. Revelation 12, verse 6, 1,260 days, the period during which the woman is nourished by God in the wilderness, that the woman there in Revelation 12 is, um, is Israel, because giving birth to the church, Jesus Christ, and then the church. Um, this, that Revelation 12 gives a, a quick span of the history from, from Israel right to the church and the end of, at the end of time. Just kind of, kind of synoptic clarity, just crystallizing everything there. Can't slot it in. Revelation 12 is that. Then Revelation 12, verse 14, a time, times, and half a time, the period during which the woman is nourished in the wilderness. See? God protects her. Now, the woman, as it mentioned, Revelation 17, that is not a good woman. Okay? That's not nothing to do with God. Revelation 13, verse 5, 42 months, the period during which the beast acts with authority and blasphemies. So you see, this statement is spread out from Old Testament to New Testament, these numbers. And one's understanding of these times re references will depend on how we interpret different event of prophesied to occur within each period respectively and so designated 42 months equaled 1260 days time times and half time which is three and a half years all refer to the entire present age intervening between the two comings of Christ. In other words, they are but they are but literal variations for the same period. Literary, literary, not literal, I should say, literary variations of the same period. It is the period of persecution and tyranny during which the people of God are oppressed and martyred. We see it all through the history of the church. 
you see it rampant in all of the New Testament and in the, in, on, in the book of Revelation. So it's not chronological reference, but it's a theological understanding of persecution and suffering um, within that intense, um, that time of, of, of that. So the number three and a half is described as a time, times and half time. But that isn't what we expect it is. No, no. We expect there, there to be time after which comes two times, after which comes four times. That is what you'd expect. But instead, the expression four times, the expression four times we read merely of a half time instead of four times. So there is a shift there which we need to take note of. This is no coincidence. This is precision in, in accentuating the quality of the period and, and for us to take note of what these things symbolize, not literally, but the literary expression. The point is that the beast will hold sway for a time. His, his tyranny, or tyranny, English or American, will increase in strength and intensity. Okay, that is um, times, double up now. This is represented by the word times. We should then expect that the intensity of this rule will double. So you should merely get, um, you know, instead of half time, you should get um, four times. But that is not what the text is saying. But before we even get to that, we get a shift back to something. Less than what began. We are told that it will be for a mere half time. That is powerful. Thus signifying that his power is cut off. Just when it seemed to be increasing towards its fullness, it's cut off. And this is from Professor, the late Professor E.J. Young, in a very powerful Old Testament scholar. He did some good work on, on Isaiah and the book of Daniel in his, in his book, um, scholarly book, The Messianic Prophecies of Daniel, pages 52 to 53, well stated by E.J. Young. There's evidence both in the Old Testament and outside it that the number three and a half gradually became a stereotypical or stock designation in apocalyptic literature for a period of persecution and distress, regardless of its chronological duration. As for references to this frame in biblical literature, note that three and a half years of drought during the, um, the ministry of Elijah and the rule of Ahab and Jezebel in 1 Kings chapter, chapter 17 to 18. If you see also in Luke chapter 4, verse 25, James chapter 5, verse 17, it was also approximately three and a half years that Antiochus Epiphanes persecuted the Jewish people by defiling the temple. The reference to 42 months is possibly taken from the 42 years of Israel's wilderness too. The initial two years followed by 40, 
God inflicted upon them. It could also um, allude to 42 stations or the encampments of Israel while in the wilderness. We see this in Numbers chapter 33 and verses five, verse five and following. Others suggest that the 32 um, and a half signifies a broken seven and thus becomes a symbol for the interruption of the defined order by the malice of Satan and evil men, a period of unrest and trouble. So all these are nuances, hints of a symbolic expression. So in light of all of this, I personally believe, and from my, my reading and studies, that the period is simply an expression of a time of tyranny or tyranny until the end comes. The period of eschatological crisis, the age of persecution and pilgrimage for the people of God, however long it may be. The figure thus becomes a symbol of the red cross of the shorthand, a shorthand way of indicating the period during which the nations and the unbelievers seem to dominate the world. But the people of God, God's people, maintain their weakness in it, even if it means that they are dying. And so therefore, John is not attempting to tell us how long the beast would hold power, as if it's three and a half or 42 or so in a literal sense. He is specifying a period that is chronologically precise. It is not the length, but the kind of period that is meant. In other words, the three and a half and 42 months and 1,260 days are not a designation, a description of the chronological quantity of the period, but rather the spiritual and theological quality, which is packed with persecution, martyrdom, and uh, of course, execution. Now, here's where we get up, we get to even deeper. Verses three and four of Revelation chapter 11. Whew. Wow. Who are the two witnesses? And we might spend the next half an hour on this, or a little longer. Who are the two witnesses? I, you could read many commentaries. There are so many different views on this. Once again, contrary to what you have been taught, are real or historical individuals. Let me explain. But rather symbolize the entire church of Jesus Christ in its missionary and prophetic role during the present age and particularly at the close of history. All right. Now, there are about nine possibilities for whom might people say that these are two witnesses? That's so many views there are on this. 
But for time's sake, I won't get into the all nine. Um, in some cases, it might even be 10, but I, that other one I wouldn't even mention um, is that um, I'll just focus on about three. I think that have the qualifiers more possible and then select one, as I said earlier. First of all, some believe that it is Enoch and Elijah. This view is based on the belief that Enoch, Genesis 5, verse 24, and Elijah, 2 Kings 2, verses 10 and 11, were the only two Old Testament figures who did not experience physical death. Thus, theologically speaking, they would be most likely candidates to return to earth and to complete the ministry which their heavenly translation cut short. And I must pause here because I know a few professors, not going to call any names or anything, who explain these two witnesses from the perspective of just what I just stated. And quote the scripture where it says, it's, a, it's appointed unto man once to die and after that is judgment. So therefore, they didn't die. So they have to come back now to fulfill that scripture. That is wrong. Why it is wrong? Many reasons, but one main reason. How do you explain then when there are people who are in the scriptures who died more than once? For example, um, of the three we see in the gospels, look at you know Lazarus, for example. He died twice when he resurrected and he, he came back and he died again. So how do you explain that? How can you extrapolate from that? So that will, that will show that if, if, if they didn't die enough to come back to die, and it must be them now coming back to do this, then how do you explain those who died twice? No, it wouldn't qualify. And not even to talk about um, Moses who, you know, God buried him, but well, he, 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 we can't say he didn't face death. There's some, you know, something there. So that my point is concerning this, it is not Enoch and Elijah coming back. No. God, there are, there, are, there are rules, but there are exceptions to those rules. And we see it in scripture, which does not contradict the general rule. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. But yet, there are people who didn't die, like Mount Enoch and Elijah. And there are others who died twice. Lazarus is an example. Okay. Then the second, another view is that is Joshua and Zerubbabel. Since Revelation 11 verses three and verse three and following those verses is a clearly patterned after Zechariah chapter four verses one to 14, where these two figures are mentioned, they are seen as likely candidates. But that again is speculation. Then another view, they think it's Moses and Elijah. The most popular of all this view is this. Most people will, will say it's that. 
It was Elijah who called down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. We see these prophets calling down fire here. First Kings 18, verse 38. To consume the enemies. Second Kings 1, verses 10 to 14. Luke 9, verse 54. In Revelation 11, however, the imagery is changed and the fire proceeds from their mouths. The mouths of the witnesses, not from heaven. So it's not them. Elijah also prevented rain from falling for three and a half years. First Kings 17, verse 1. Moses was responsible for turning water into blood. Exodus 7, verses 14 to 24. And for striking the Egyptians with, the, with every sort of plague. 1 Samuel 4, verse 8. And the two appeared together with Jesus on Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, verse 3. However, this does not mean that the two witnesses literally are Moses and Elijah. First of all, let us, so none of those three views I hold to, right? The third one is the strongest, that's most popular because it's it, it kind of mirrors a little bit of what these two characters, Moses and Elijah, did in the Old Testament. You see something similar in this context, but there are some differences. First of all, more differences now. The powers of each of these two Old Testament figures were attributed to both of the two witnesses, not divided between them. So if you look at Revelation chapter 11, verses 5 to 6, they both share the same thing. Moses and Elijah didn't do that. Look at all the references um, to them. It's, it it, 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 it emphasizes they, them, their. So it's speaking about a unit, not just individuals. In other words, they are, as Professor Beale notes, identical prophetic twins, if you may, in his, in his book in Revelation, five, page 575. Secondly, and even very poignantly, is the fact that they are called two olive trees and two lampstands, Revelation 11, verse 4. The reference to two olive trees most likely point to the fact that they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Olive tree, olive oil, was often associated with anointing, and anointing is associated with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So here we see a symbolic number of these two witnesses sharing the same power. They're not the they, the them, and the there. That is how they are described in Revelation 11. They're not separate units firing on different you know, things like in the Old Testament characters. We notice also that the lampstand reference here in Revelation is used symbolic for the church. We see it in the early chapters of Revelation, 
Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we see there that the church, the seven churches, they are the lampstands. Revelation 1, 19, you see there, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Therefore, the two lampstands stand for the church exercising its role as witnesses um, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But why two and not seven mentioned here? It gets even more complex. Let us not forget that although the scripture, although throughout the scripture, it was required that evidence be done between two witnesses. Numbers 35 verse 30, Deuteronomy 17 verse 6, Hebrews 10 verse 28, 1 Timothy 5 verse 19. Those are some references and more I could give. When Jesus sent his followers into every town and place, he did so two by two. Jesus had this pattern. Start to say that we don't use that pattern so much as a church. We see the Jehovah's Witnesses doing that more so. And there, there is a cult. We should be doing that. Um, when Jesus... This is found in Luke 10, verse 1, by the way. The two witnesses, then, are not mere parts of the church, but the whole church, as much as it is fulfilling its role as faithful prophetic witnesses in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think that there's a most accurate description of these two witnesses. According to verses 9 to 13 in Revelation 11, um, we see that the entire world of unbelievers will see the defeat and resurrection of the witnesses. This means that the witnesses are visible throughout the whole earth, which makes sense if the symbolic number, because the church is global, according to Professor Biel again on page 574. But let me stick something here. Carl Lindsay, who is a dispensationalist, had some response to that view, the view that I hold to. And he said he appealed to the availability of worldwide television to make this possible. And not is worldwide internet. And so it's possible for them, everybody to see the witnesses in that sense, because he holds that literal thing and he doesn't believe is a church. So simply put, I disagree with what Heldin says, though. I believe that it is the it is a church who is a witness, and I'm going to explain in a minute um, the ministry of these two witnesses in verses three to six. So simply put, you, myself, we, Pastor Archer here, all who are listening to me, we are, along with all the believers in the world, are the two witnesses. Don't let the two give you a divisive sense like it's two individuals, because they're not named. But the, but the imagery and what they do are all pointing to the church, the symbols of the church. All Christians collectively, as they bear witness to the gospel, and the Lordship of Jesus Christ are represented by the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11, speaking about us. <laughs> the ministry of these two witnesses now, you know it gets really 
it, it explains even more things. The harm mentioned in verse five, from which they are protected, is a result of the church having been measured, as I said earlier in verse one, and also in Revelation seven, verses one to four and so on, they are, are sealed. Christians who comprise a church will undoubtedly suffer bodily harm and economic oppression and political harassment and spiritual persecution, but nothing can threaten our eternal security and relationship with God. They may kill the body, but they cannot destroy or touch the soul. Having said that, the worst imaginable effort of the beast, the church will fulfill its mission of bearing witness to Jesus Christ. Yes, nothing can stop the church. Some years ago, I spoke on the unstoppable church. Um, you know, and um, there's some other, F.F. F. Bruce wrote a book some time ago, um, The Spreading Flame, can't stop the church. The fire, that fire that we see in Revelation 11 here, coming from them, that shall proceed out of their mouths, points again to the symbolic nature of both the witnesses and the ministry they are described as fulfilling. Revelation 1 verse 16, Revelation 19 verses 15 and 21. You see that there. Jesus is portrayed as judging his enemies by means of a sharp sword proceeding from his mouth. Revelation 2 verse 16. This is clearly a metaphor of the effects and fruit of the spoken word whether it be judgment or blessing. We read the same imagery in Jeremiah 5, verse 14, where it says, Therefore, thus said the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire. And this people would, and the fire shall consume them. So there we find you wouldn't take that literal in Jeremiah. So you have to know when to take something literal and when to take it. Although it is literarily stated, so a literal thing comes to our mind, it is pointing to uh, um, a spiritual symbolic reality. And that the reality is not symbolic, but the reality is real, but, but these are symbols that point beyond, point beyond themselves to the reality. And so, therefore, thus said the Lord, as I said, I just read a while ago. But okay, what precisely does this mean though? By the imagery of the church through your prophetic ministry, stopping the rain, turning water into blood, smiting the earth with plagues, the power to shut the sky, so that no rain will fall was a hallmark of Elijah's ministry. But in James chapter 5, verses 16 to 17, James mentions um, the, um, this facet of Elijah's ministry and tells us that our prayers can be just as powerful 
and effective as Elijah's. So there we find a connection in the book of James saying that using Elijah's efficacy of prayer with our efficacy of prayer to, to, to bring about these things. And so therefore, this power to halt the rain is simply reference to the impact of prayer of God's people of this age. Which rain is going to fall literally at that time? I, I don't know. I'm not spiritualizing this away, but I'm taking things in a real context because the church is literally real. The church is not symbolic in this, in this, in this, in this case. But these are symbols pointing to the ministry of the church. Or it would be that God will, in response to the preaching and prayer, according to James 5, verses 16 to 17, and prophesying of the church or the, pro the proclamation of the word by the church, pour out his judgment on an unbelieving world. Because we read it in verse 10. In verse 10, that the two witnesses are described as having tormented the earth dwellers. So we see it fitting together. They are tormenting the earth dwellers, not with the rain and all that, but with the power of the gospel. The word which, um, you know, some, some, um, we spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Um, to some who are, who are being saved and to some who are not being saved. You see, it's, it has this double effect. And so it torment the dwellers on the earth. Is the, is the torment a reference to the sealed trumpets and bold judgments? Could be, yeah. Because remember in Revelation chapter eight, you see the first few verses where our prayers go up and come back down with peals of thunder and so on, judgment coming down. You have to connect that with verse chapter 11 here. Uh, is the church and its ministry one of the means by which these judgments are poured out on the earth? Yes, as I said. Again, Revelation 8, verses 3 to 5. Now it's coming together. The reference to water being turned into blood and plague striking the earth evokes the memory of what Moses did in securing the liberation of Israel out of the bondage, out of Egypt. Perhaps the declaration in verse 6 of Revelation chapter 11 that the church has this power means that we have the necessary power to liberate people from bondage. It's like um, the enslaved um, bondage to enable people to experience the new exodus. That is what this is referring to from sin. The new exodus from sin through Jesus Christ. This is what Professor Hamilton says in his commentary in pages in page 239. Thus then, this is what the church is to do in this present age. But what should we expect for the last two verses now, verses 7 to 10? This is what the church will be doing right now in this age. Remember that. What should we expect? Ready for this? I, again, I've been saying this throughout Revelation. The church is going to go through the great tribulation. Here we find it reiterated again. Persecute. Verses 
um, 7 to 10 in Revelation chapter 11. Persecution and oppression. The opening words of verse 7 indicate that John, um, John is now describing what will occur at the end of history. Clearly, the measuring of verse 1 has succeeded in preserving the church and its prophetic witness impact in, in, intact and impacting the world as it does that until it is accomplished. Perhaps Jesus said, this gospel shall be preached to the end of the world, then the end shall come. You're going to see how that comes full circle in the, in the rest of this study here. The beast, you see the first mention of the beast in Revelation. Revelation 11, right here, verse 7. The beast is mentioned here for the first time in Revelation. Although it appears that John expected his readers to know and understand about this long before. Let us know two quick things. First of all, the beast does not know at the end of history for the first time rise up from the bottomless pit. It's not just at the end of the age, no. The phrase, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit describes what is characteristic of the beast, most likely throughout the course of the church's witness during the entire, between the first and second coming of Christ. The beast has been actively engaged in persecuting God's people for the last 2000 years. And will continue to do so right up until the end um, and will destroy um, right, right, up, right up until the, when Christ will destroy him at the end of the age. But before that happened, this is the first indication that the beast is far more than the end time antichrist. Because even John, in 1 John chapter 2, he talks twice there about the time of the time antichrist, the spirit of antichrist was back even then. So you can't have the and the you can't have a, the Antichrist coming up, the spirit of Antichrist without a beast system. So we need to understand that that has been enforced all along. And so when you reach Revelation 13, you're going to see um, the kind of more expression of the beast coming up near to the end of the age. The description in verse 8 is not intended to suggest that the entire church is destroyed because as professor um wilcock explains scripture does not seem to envision a time when at the very end of history an unexplained onslaught will be mounted against the church and she will and she will and she will to all appearance go under Verse one, I'm in reverse, page 106. Let me slow down with me speaking a bit. Right? I should say that scripture does seem to envision a time when this is going to happen at the end of the age. I said does not. Does seem that it is so. It will appear that the public and official witness of the church has been smothered. The previous influence of the church will be diminished and be treated with 
indignity and open contempt, which is surely the point of their bodies being left unburied. It emphasizes dignity, no dignity, indignity and open contempt. This is where the church will seem to be losing and people have been mocking as if to say, well, where's the power of God? All that stuff which Jeremiah talks about in, 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 in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 8 verses 1 to 2, you see there, Jeremiah 16 verses 4 to, to 6, um, and so on. Jeremiah 22 verse 19, you see some of these mirrored references there. But let us look a little deeper now. The great city in verse 8, Literal Jerusalem, many think so. But this could only be the case if the two witnesses were literal individuals, contrary to what I am, am stating here. And I stated above, of course, further explained. In every instance in Revelation, where the words great city are used, it refers to Babylon the Great, Rome. Maybe not Jerusalem. The great city is then the ungodly world as a whole where the earth dwellers live in the realm of Babylonian influence. The, this great city is symbolically or more accurately spiritual. The Greek word used here emphasizes pneumaticos. Um, called Sodom and Egypt. Joel 3, verse 19. It says where Jesus died. Jesus didn't die, just died in Jerusalem. But what causes death? The spirit of Babylon. They were the one who executed. That is the point. Scripture, some people come to this text and say, ah, the Bible made a mistake here because Jesus didn't die in, in Egypt and, and Sodom and so on. But is but but is what caused Jesus' death is not the geographical location, but the but the spiritual forces that cause people to do that. Although above all of that, God allowed it. And even so, <laughs> ordained it, if you may. Um, but yet God is pure and in him there's no shadow of turning, no darkness at all. The word symbolically indicates that the city is not to be understood in a literal earthly manner, but figuratively through spiritual eyes. The city is ungodly and is not to be located in any one geographical area, but is an ungodly spiritual realm on earth. This is Professor Beale again in his great commentary on Revelation, pages, page 592. Or as Richard Phillips says in his commentary, that these cities represent not a place in the world, but the world itself in its sensual harlotry, violent persecution, and idol worshiping false religion as it militantly opposes the gospel. We see that in his commentary, page 324. The final phrase stated there in verse eight, 
where their Lord was crucified has led some to insist literal Jerusalem is meant. But think again that John is saying that Jesus Christ was um, the ungodly in earth. But, but John is saying that Jesus was crucified in, throughout, and by the ungodly of the entire earth. And as I said earlier, exactly that is the point. So there's no mistake that the text is making here. Everything must be understood in the light of these, um, these references. In other words, the world city is spiritually like Jerusalem in having turned its back on Jesus, if you want to look at it that way. Accounting for his crucifixion and its continuing hostility to him and those who bear witness to his life, death, and resurrection. Because G Jerusalem was supposed to be the place, the sacred place, uh, the city, the most holy place, and so on. And, you know, they turned around and killed him, crucifying, crucifying his own people. That place and the conduit to which he came through, they were the ones who turned around and did that because the Jews were representative humanity. And the veil of the temple was torn in two and so on, and the temple was done away with. So we're looking ahead of, at other things. The apparent demise of the church will captivate the attention of the believing world, but only for a brief season, as I said earlier. The three and a half days of their shame is to be contrasted with three and a half years of invincible weakness. The former to be taken as more literal, no more literal than the, the latter. So it's speaking about, um, the point is simply that the victory of the beast and his followers is brief and insignificant in comparison to the victorious testimony of the witnesses. Professor Beale again, page 595. Their reference to place his body in a tomb is again a powerful symbolic heightening of the indignity and contempt to which the unbelieving world subject the church. And so the happiness and merriment of the earth dwellers in verse 10 is due to their belief that the message of the church which brought them so much discomfort and torment and emotional anguish has been silenced. Their joy is due to the belief that the ultimate judgment with the church proclaimed will now never come to pass. They thought that, you know, everything is fizzled. Evil has won, it seems. Simply put, verses 7 to 10 of Revelation 11 are designed to portray symbolically the global scope of all the persecution and eventual martyrdom of Christians throughout the present church age, in which it appears that God's people are destroyed and it seems as if evil has triumphed over truth and godliness and holiness and righteousness. But appearances, of course, can truly be deceiving when it comes to good or against evil. Resurrection and our 
vindication of God's people. You see in verses 11 to 12, um, we might not be able to finish tonight, but I have to go on because I, I wasn't recorded. I missed about almost 50 minutes of recording, so I'll just carry on. Um, I had my, my, my unit on mute and wasn't aware. Anyway, this portrayal of the resurrection is an echo of Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 5 and verse 10 where we read that God's restoration of Israel out of the Babylonian Esther exile. The nation in exile is described as corpses of which only dry bones remain. Again, the dry bones and so on are speaking prophetically about restoration and you know, revival. Some believe the resurrection in Revelation 11, 11 is literal and refers to the body resurrection of the dead in Christ, which occurs at the time of the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. But that is not what he's speaking about here. Others contend that this scene is simply because if we look at Revelation 17, the church is still here. And we shall grow with the tears until the day of harvest, the day. And on the last day, there shall be the resurrection unto damnation and resurrection unto glorification. It's one event, different destinies. So it's not speaking about the rapture there, not in, not in that context. Is a great fear that fell upon verse uh, unbelievers who saw them a, 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 was it a saving fear? Descriptive of their repentance and salvation. For example, Revelation 14, verse 7, Revelation 15, verse 4, and 19, verse 5. Or is it merely a reversal of their joy and merriment? Verse 10 of Revelation 11. As they suddenly realize that they must face the wrath of God, whom the witnesses proclaim for fear of its sort, Revelation, um, Jonah chapter one, verses six and 16. We're not sure about that, what that fear represents. All the resources, you see, I told you it's a difficult section this. But let us look at the final verse, verse 13, and then close. Revelation eleven thirteen. There are about um, four main things in this verse that occur in that hour. And that all represent a condensed period of time now. At the time of Christ's return, when God's people are vindicated and um, exonerated and resurrected. First, there's a great earthquake. Similar terminology occurs in Revelation 6, verse 12, the sixth seal, and Revelation 16, verse 8, 18, the seventh bowl. Bowls represent pouring out, where the last judgment is being unfolded. Is it a literal earthquake? 
or is it symbolic portrayal of the fall of earthly kingdoms as Christ brings in his judgment to bear upon them? We have to wait and see that happening. The great earthquake. There'll be a shaking, Jesus said, and he'll shake the, the foundation of the heavens again. Um, and we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So the earth is crumbling. As I said in some time ago, there is a decreation that is happening. All the structural foundations of creation, as stated in Genesis, is falling apart until there be a final catastrophe. Then secondly, there is a tenth of the city that fell. Well, this is where it gets interesting again. All is interesting, but you know what I mean. Then there's also 7,000 people who were killed in the earthquake. What is happening here? Because all of this, no explanation is given, just these statements are being made. Only 7,000, only one, um, only um, one tenth. What is happening here? These are odd numbers in our observation initially. But if you look at it, the two, if the two witnesses are linked to the ministry of Elijah, 7,000 who die, maybe just equivalent to 7,000 faithful who did not bow their knees to Baal. Romans 11 verse 4. There could be a parallel there. But these are odd numbers. If this is a global judgment at the time when Christ returned, why does only one-tenth of the world's city fall and why only 7,000 people are killed? This has created a dilemma in all levels of interpretation. This is chewing meat here and bone, and you have perhaps strong teeth. Then, if that's not the end of it, there is what is called a rest, were terrified and gave glory to God, the God of heaven. The question once again is whether the terror or fear and the subsequent glorifying of God describes an expression of saving repentance and faith in the God of heaven. Now it's getting clear that there's a connection here. So we see the pattern times, time, times, and half time. That's what evil is going to cause happen. It's bad, it's getting worse, anything going quadruple and get really worse, but then bam, half time. In other words, it's, it's, it's defeated. The, um, the, the, um, the, 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 the witnesses, they are defeated physically. They're, the church is knocked down, but not knocked out. We see it in Revelation 13, verse 7 again. The saints are defeated. Of course, we are more than conquerors. But it was, it was a physical thing. That is what persecution would do. And many people preaching that, no, no, no. 
everything is very fine and so on, and the church will be out of it. Not at all. In Revelation 6, you see there when the martyrs are crying under the altar, how long, how long, how long? One of the three things mentioned here, the last thing mentioned here is that until all your brethren who are designed are appointed to be martyred until the, the numbers are finalized, or in other words, they all die as appointed to die that way, then shall the end. Yes, the Gentiles too. God knows, God's in control of that. So there will be a quota of martyrs. Right up to the end. So we should also take note that Revelation 16, verse 9, where the unrepentant are described in these terms, they did not repent, Revelation 16, verse 9, that's the opposite now, and give glory to God. The point being, that to give God glory is to repent. In this context, you see it happening. In fact, Revelation, to give God glory, always refers positively to a saving response on the part of God's people. You see Revelation 4, 9, 14, 7, 16, 9, and 19, 7. Now, I must say that I do not believe that things will get better and better and better and better and then the Lord comes. But things will get worse and worse and worse. But I believe that there will be a global resurgence or revival is more of the people of God. But I would say a global end harvest, a global harvest of souls. That's what I believe this text teaches. Let me, let me finish up some um, commentary notes here. As compiled and, you know, I'm just drawing it together. There's yet one more thing we must note. And um, this is what Richard um, Buckham states. He believes that um, the numbers one-tenth and 7,000 indicate that the conversion portrayed here is of a vast majority of the lost, not a partial few. There is the event in Revelation 11 verses 11 to 13. Um, it is therefore an indication of a great, vast, global harvest of souls. In the Old Testament, God's judgment typically falls on a vast majority of people and only a tiny remnant is saved or delivered. That remnant often described only as one-tenth. Amos 5, verse 3, Isaiah 6, verse 13, where it is present in its present context, the tenth part is a righteous remnant. The figure of 7,000 alludes more specifically to Elijah's prophetic commission to bring about the judgment of all except the 7,000 faithful Israelites who had not bowed their knees to Baal. See? Very important to understand that. 
First Kings chapter 19, verses 14 to 18. Romans chapter 11, verses 2 to 5. In other words, John, in verse 13, reverses the, the order. It is usually a small number whom God saves and a large percentage that will face judgment. But here in Revelation 11, verse 3, it is a small percentage that God judges and a large percentage that God saves. In other words, there's a victory of the church, the ministry of the church. And so only a tenth of the city falls under judgment. Nine tenths of the city fears God and gives him glory. Only 7,000 are killed with this great earthquake as mentioned, and the rest fear God and give him glory. And so therefore it describes a global harvest of souls coming into the kingdom at the end of the age. Isn't that wonderful? And I believe that this is what Jesus referred to when the gospel shall preach the end of the earth and the Gentiles. And we see that kind of building momentum now. That's why we should not lose heart when we are, when we seem as if we have no results. Our prayers are going up. And when we, when we do YouTube and, and when we go on the um, internet and Zoom and all the different platforms, um, God has taken us out of the salt shake, as it were, the literal church. We still meet yet. But he has opened up a way and shuffle up things in the world where not only that evil is going on these lines, but the gospel is crossing all lines where our physical bodies can't go. And so let us be encouraged that you, myself, in our little room right now, where you are at home, you make up these two witnesses because these two witnesses in Revelation 11, no matter what views you might hear of the nine views or 10 views, is the church of Jesus Christ. As I described, um, I did an overview earlier. So let us be encouraged. You might say, well, I'm not, it, it, it can't be me. Yes, it is you. It is you. And your prayers going up. Revelation 8. And um, we, we, we are in the mix of things. We are not on the side watching. And don't watch the the arm, um, the, the, the TV and see what's, it seems as if we are losing, but we look at things that are not seen. And once you understand this text, you realize that we are knocked down, yes, with persecution and, and martyrdom, but we're not knocked out. Just as we shall have physical resurrection, there'll be a resurgence of the church at the end. Not that all, I don't believe in what is called the, um, the, the seven mountains, um, dominion theology, not in that sense. I don't believe in what is called post millennial 
um, post, um, they call it now, post-millennialism, um, I believe the church go through the, 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 the Great Tribulation, but post-millennialism kind of emphasizes that there'll be a, everything will get better and better and better and prepare until Jesus comes. I, I, that's not what I believe. I believe that things will get worse and worse with the persecution and so on. But in the final thing, God's word shall not return unto him void, but it shall accomplish that which is sent to do. And there'll be a great harvest at the end when everything is falling apart with this decreation, yet an influx of new creation, new people in Christ. Any man in Christ is a new creation, just anticipating this literal new creation that is to come when the kingdom of God comes in to um, take over this decreation. The best is yet to come. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. And thank you for carrying us through this difficult passage. So many views on it. And oh God, we're not just sticking to a view, but we made a case based upon drawing from different sources of what your word teaches. The literary, symbolic, figurative, reality that points beyond himself to the spiritual reality of the church's impact in the here and now and in the future that is coming to us. Pray that you will help us as your witnesses to truly be encouraged through this study. In Jesus' name, amen.